gentlemen, welcome to this Fuds on Film commentary track for Funeral in Berlin. I'm Scott Morris and I'm joined today by Drew Tavendale. Good evening, or morning, whenever you happen to be listening. It's whenever your fancy is taking you to watch this. Uh, we won't dictate when you can watch a film. No, we're not Nazis. Uh, so if you haven't already pressed play on your video watching method of choice, then you'll have to do that. So run back and start both the video and this track at the same time. So, this of course is the other Len Dayton film, which we, uh, or Len Dayton adaptation, which we talked about briefly in our last uh, podcast about the art of spycraft featuring uh, Harry Palmer as Michael Caine returning. So, we're very glad to be looking at this. It's been a long time since I watched this, actually. One of my, one of the, as much as I've watched the Chris file on and off again throughout the years, Funeral in Berlin seems to be the kind of forgotten middle episode between this and the uh, not quite so good billion dollar brain. Yeah, the um, Harry Palmer stuff's actually a bit of a a gap in my cinematic CV because much as I love the Chris file, it's the only one I've ever seen. So I'm quite looking forward to to popping my chair in Funeral in Berlin here. Ooh, sexy. And the James Bond um, connections continue. Again, it's produced by Harry Saltzman, who is Cubby Broccoli's production partner for the James Bond films, and this one directed by Gam... Gam? Gam? Gam Hamilton. Mm. So I'm directed by Gam Hamilton, uh, who directed Foldginger. And a couple other Bond films. That's quite a different take on spies as we covered on our last podcast. Mm. This is not in any way Bond-like at all. You know, because I think people don't know who Harry Palmer is. Yeah. Which is nice. He, he's got the whole spying thing down. Spying <laughs> 101. Don't let people know who you are. Yeah. <laughs> so the other thing we can thank Saltzman for is actually the name, Harry Palmer. The I've just finished reading the the novel, A Funeral in Berlin, and like okay. it, like the previous ones, the protagonist is not named, but right, Saltzman, Saltzman, yeah, Saltzman felt that wouldn't fly, so Harry Palmer seemed to be the most kind of common name you could think of at the time, so. I don't know, I mean, I'm not sure about the whole not fly, like, like, for some, the name, the name, the, the, uh, Ken Adam, production designer, yet another um, Bond connection there too, uh, but he's got, I guess, uh, Far less of his giant hollowed out volcano layer, volcano layers going on in this. <laughs> uh, yeah, uh, the name Harry Palmer too. Yes, it's quite a sort of regular Joe kind of name, and I kind of get that. And you have the, the quite famous line from there because I shall bite you, Palmer. It sounds good, but Sergio Leone got away with his protagonist not having a name, and those films are fantastic. So uh, Harry yeah, Potter, frankly, talking about his bum. <laughs> what film was that? In? The Man with No Name trilogy. Oh, I didn't, I didn't make that connection before. Yeah, and Clint Eastwood's not named. <laughs> right, so I'm guessing the the general theme here is that Berlin is a bit grim. Yes, well, I think at this point on both sides, but particularly on the eastern side, this is, I think, set not too long after the wall went up. And so you still have some people like this fella making a run for it. That's a very daring way of doing it, at least. Yeah. (laughs) 
it's good. The the very thick steel repelled the first um, four dozen bullets, but we should definitely keep <laughs> shooting. That'll help. <laughs> you think there might have been some questioning of whether that why on earth that crane was thrown to to that uh, particular building site beforehand? I'm not. I don't think this is the most realistic way of <laughs> actually smuggling yourself across the wall. I'm not quite sure why um, the crane's going from one side of the wall to the other in the first place, but... No. <laughs> okay. We've all had a dramatic bucket snatch from now and again, haven't we? It's just one of those rites of passage. It's a euphemism, right? Oh, probably. Isn't everything... <laughs> a man playing the piano with his elbows nowadays that'd be on Britain's Got Talent not an insult <laughs> like it was for Harry Palmer <laughs> The posters, I think, for this film are trying briefly to make those glasses iconic, but not quite sure that worked out there. No. I mean, there's possibly something a bit iconic about Michael Caine in glasses, but you just like, you as well, well, it could be Alfie. In fact, yeah. more likely to think of Alfie, I would imagine. Yeah. yeah. So, sort of, your kind of NHS looking 1960s specs, aren't they? There's nothing particularly yeah, special about them. Rather generic. <laughs> Uh, nice bit of casual chauvinism there. Fantastic. <laughs> yes, there are certain things that age a film quite readily. That's got to be one of them, although. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Is this the second film, Scott? In the it is, after yeah. this film, okay. how many were there in total? Um, any respectable person's head cannon should be the three, uh, <laughs> possibly reducing to two. Ipcris uh, file this, and of course, billion dollar brain. Maybe we'll circle back to, but there was actually two uh, made for television mm, outings. Midnight in St. Petersburg and Bullet to Beijing, which I, I dug out to watch just before this as well, and that was a certainly four hours that I shan't get back. <laughs> Warning bells should be ringing when they're casting a Jason Connery in it. Who, bless him, not not quite not quite able to step out of the shadow as father because well he's not particularly good mm. at the whole acting deal. So so uh, yes. 
those were two, as I say, made-for-TV movies and kind of actually, to be fair, by the standards of mid-90s made-for-TV movies are acceptable enough, but yes, not something that's really worth uh, digging out. Mm. It's, um, it's strange, you know, Bullet to Beijing doesn't half sound like it should star Steven Seagal. It, it does, doesn't it? <laughs> it's got that sort of feel about it, really. Billion Dollar Brains, I think we kind of briefly touched on our last podcast. It's uh, it's not the best, although I watched it again just before uh, this again, and it's actually better than I recall it being. I, I think in, the problem is in my brain, I only actually remember the last bits, which is quite stupid. Um, I only remember the stupid bits and not the kind of actual good work it does before that, because the first hour, uh, at least, is as good as the Chris file, uh-huh. to an extent. Uh, it just kind of falls off the rain with the whole general midwinter thing. But even that kind of makes some sort of sense because at the end, his his, his attack is just swatted away by the Russians as though it's nothing, which is actually quite quite charming. Uh. <laughs> Answers to the name of Confucius, okay. Two things with that. One, who steals cats? And two, has a cat ever answered to anything? No. It's not in their nature. No, even if they could, I don't think they would. No. <laughs> yes, they're cho- they're, to be fair, they're choosing not to, rather than <laughs> simply not being able to. This is the case, isn't it? Same cinematographer as the Chris file. Oh, and Alfie actually, so um, Otto Heller's worked with Michael Caine a number of times. Really, um, it's one of the things I'm actually looking forward to. It's one of the things that really stood out about the Chris file. And it, it was just hit me again so much when I watched it recently was um, how good the cinematographer is, how many really, really interesting camera angles were there. Yeah. Interesting to see if this actually has the same. I, I assume it would do. I can't actually recall them being that interesting cinematography-wise, but um, yeah, let's yeah, so let's find out. Would it be in the same DP? Um, you would hope so, but it's yeah. Um, it's directed by Guy Hamilton, who, well, frankly, is a bit of a hack. Mm, but Route One, yeah, um, <laughs> it's something that, was, that really occurred to me again going back and watching things like. Goldfinger again a few years ago and I realised I also used to think I liked Goldfinger it's like, not actually very good and a lot of it comes down to just how many <laughs> bad directors they had on Bond films Terence Young had done a, a really good job but Guy Hamilton not so much for a lot of the stuff he was involved with kind of Englishman turns down a cup of tea.
you're seeing Pan Am logos and things from, <laughs> just thinking from, that. from yesteryear, isn't yeah. it? <laughs> I just think, think things like um, it Catch Me If You Can it was all over that and it's because Pan Am was it seemed to be like the airline and then so what happened in the 1990s just gone yep so now you bit unfair that actually I don't really think it was their fault and then just just disappeared off the face of the earth completely it's such an iconic um, the 1960s particular name I have, you know, some hope for this film. As I say, this is this is new to me too. Um, maybe to a lot of people listening along. I'm looking forward to Michael Caine's performance in it. Uh, it's from Len Dayton. Slightly concerned. I've just noticed that the screenwriter wrote Escape to Victory. <laughs> That's not really something you want in your CV, is it? <laughs> well, regardless, it can't possibly be worse than those two uh, TV movies I mentioned earlier and one of his uh, stories autobiographies he claims that his experience filming these two I think they were done back to back was so bad that he retired for a while <laughs> but apparently only for like a couple of weeks <laughs> he got talked out of it by someone else but it was clearly not not a bright spot in anyone's career and this is a man who makes no real uh, bones about his his gun for higher status <laughs> as the likes of Jaws was it Jaws 3 4 forget the one that he said he, he was quite very open about saying he needed a new house <laughs> that must have been bad if it's um, for somebody that was quite so mercenary as that to, to quitting <laughs> so obviously that was a Steven Soderbergh type retirement to just yeah. do it for the two weeks Unnecessarily dramatic music yeah. for the checkpoint. There's, <laughs> there's nothing going on there. Oh, yeah, that's true. It's not like 
you just discovered like some villainous plot or something. It's like, yeah, it's check, uh, a checkpoint. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) Apparently the scene of Harry Palmer walking to checkpoint Charlie was shot from a distance, not for any um, dramatic reason, but because the Russian troops on the other side kept shining mirrors deliberately into the cameras and ruining the shot. <laughs> and I like, th- I mean, I would imagine that it's because they were told to, you know, kind of spoil it, it's Western propaganda or something, but I like to think they were probably just, they all just felt like 12 year olds and they were having a, um, a laugh and <laughs> pissing themselves um, by uh, ruining somebody's shot by shining light into this <laughs> camera with the mirrors. Yeah, they're just bored, it does sound they? pretty juvenile, doesn't it? <laughs> it's, it's probably more likely to be that than some kind of high-level oh, governmental probably, directive. It was quite a relaxed crossing for the height of the Cold War, really. Yeah, it's just, it was the end of the time when the walls go up. That's kind of, <laughs> yeah, the absolute height of the tension, isn't it? And it's like, ah, here you go, mate. You don't need to see your identification. You can go about your business. <laughs> <laughs> Mostly nearly all shot in Germany, mostly in Berlin too. Best place for it, really. Yeah, it's again, because of when it was shot, where it was shot, I think you might make things a bit tricky to maybe try to sort of pass somewhere off as Berlin. Yeah. <laughs> That's a ridiculous run. <laughs> That is the run from a comedy film, isn't it? The way that guy's coming up the steps there. Oh, he's so acerbic. Yes, he's keeping up the good old British traditions from until not that long ago, really. Of like, well, what do you do if the foreigner, Johnny Foreigner, doesn't speak your language? You speak simply and slowly, and that'll help, and possibly a bit <laughs> more loudly, and then he'll obviously understand. <laughs> 
I think a part of it is that he does mention in the book that he feels that it's very useful to have people continually underestimate you. So he does. You'll see throughout all the films, I think he's playing stupid, playing dumb in quite a number of uh, occasions when he clearly knows better. Yeah, um, that's a that's a pretty reasonable strategy. And certainly in the Epicurus file too, everybody thinks he's some sort of uncultured thug, and then you sort of see the glimpse. He's actually you know, he's got, he's a gourmet and. Um, like his classical music and all these other things, but it, it suits him to play as the sort of typical working class guy that's kind of ignorant of things at some points. Yeah, it's a yeah. smart strategy. It's also mentioned that it actually suits his boss, uh, Ross, in the films where he's uh, he, he's portrayed as oh, he having a very loose degree of control over this uh, this loose cannon who's firing about doing things, but they're both in on the illusions of how, how to play that mm-hmm. little game. I like Cardinal Stock. He always seems so happy. There's a laugh straight out of a Final Fantasy game. There's something about him for some reason that's just making me think of <laughs> the Colonel from Aloha Low. Not buying it. I've never thought about mistresses in cubic capacity before. Seems entirely the wrong way to think about it. Order them by the quart. There. <laughs> you're, you're right, it is. Hmm. Apparently, um, the guy plays uh, kind of start there, Oscar Hamilka. Um, 
people seem to consider that he has a generic European accent as if there's such a thing and lots of people think he's Eastern European or Russian. He's Austrian and he sounds like an Austrian. People <laughs> need better ears, I think. Well, Austria's <laughs> quite a generic country, isn't it? I mean, can you name one famous person who came out can of Austria? Can you name one famous person who came out of Austria? Who had any impact on the world at all? Um, no. I see? Can't. See? Uh, you leave can't. it with me. I, I know there's somebody. <laughs> I know there's somebody. Oh. I think it's the, 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 the <laughs> Dolph Lundgren. Um, it's Dolph Lundgren. It's, um, it begins with an A. Uh, Adolf, Adolf Arnold Arnold Schwarzenegger that was it Adolfin. yeah he's famously Austrian yeah that was There's something that appealing with just how much Michael Caine acts in these films just by staring. He does have a cracking stare. <laughs> it's like, look, basically, it's like half of this um, film, half of the Lipkiss film, is like stage directions, stare, looking stupendously unimpressed. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> stares as though he's looking at something he has scraped off the bottom of his shoe. No taste. <laughs> see the man there in the plaid jacket? Yes, I'm sorry. Um, your eyes will recover. You see him? <laughs> see the man there in the plaid jacket? And there's not a tree in sight. Oh, I saw a cracking bird. I wonder if she'll be important to the plot later on. Well, those would be the two options. 
<laughs> or we fight to the death. Drinking? You're definitely doing that wrong. Maybe <laughs> just because there's so much beer in Germany that um, they can use it for other things like hair instead. It's like, it's got tons <laughs> of stuff. It's just lying about everywhere. I guess in the road. <laughs> With this pronunciation, that sounded more like donkey. (laughs) Maybe he gave him a very small donkey. Big me donkey, if such a thing exists. What a mess. No, but really, what a mess. Just moved off this over there. There's some very 60s furniture Mm. going on there. Pretty sure I've seen that bust in the Lino Richie video. <laughs> I certainly wasn't looking for that.
It's so strange. Like, the woman playing Samantha Steele there, Eva Renzi, actually got... So, she's a German actor that they cast to play somebody with an American, or his English-sounding name, and then just got dubbed by an American anyway. Why bother? <laughs> I really don't understand casting decisions sometimes. That's got to be a plan that went wrong, though, rather than the int- original intent. Unless the brawler drugs. Whoever's doing the subtitling has a terrible lack of yeah, just so. not bothering with being German. Just just brackets German because yes, you know. can't possibly translate Strasse or anything like that. Like, German, uh, I can't be bothered with that. So just thinking back to what you were mentioning earlier, Scott, when you brought that you know Michael Caine very much talked about him basically being the gun for hire for a lot of films um, without like any particular professional passion for it mm. but in these films he does have a sort of relaxed swagger and I think he's genuinely enjoying himself in the role and it really it makes such a difference to just the yeah. way he's sort of very dryly delivering those lines there about his sex appeal and stuff and it's if he wasn't as invested in this in, like he is in some other films it, it just wouldn't work but it just Michael Caine something's grabbed him here and it's like, ah, oh, yes, that makes such a difference. Yes, it gives a good performance because, you know, it's not Jaws 3. Yeah. Yeah. That was a half-hearted cry. Like, oh no, I dropped a biscuit.
I'd like to get my hands on him and I'm so upset I would probably go oof I wish you hadn't done that Not convinced that's a normal response to being burgled. <laughs> yeah, that's the, She'd the really be just a it's trifle like, more upset than like that. Very slightly miffed, like she spilled <laughs> some milk. <laughs> yeah, but got over it very quickly. <laughs> that that passed. Oh, I got burgled. That'll happen. Pass the potatoes. <laughs> Yeah, thief soldier, not. Ha, <laughs> 
nightclubs were rather different in those days. <laughs> I was expecting rather more techno. Yeah, it's definitely not what you expect from German nightclub, is it? In the corner. No. <laughs> no. So you're going to do beat poetry. <laughs> it's better to start going, whoa, man, whoa, man. That's an interesting face. <laughs> I suddenly feel like performance art now.
Wheels within wheels. No flies on him. Mm. So again, this is just coming back to what we were talking about during that podcast episode. There is a relatively low-stakes game going on here. It's trying to get one person across a wall. So far, no one has threatened to blow up the world. There's, there, There's been no satellites launched. They are going to eat other satellites. It's, a, it's all a bit more low key. Yeah, and again, as we mentioned during that podcast, it's it's so much easier to get invested in something like that, um, particularly when it comes to how you think it's going to go. Um, that yeah. And I, as I say, I've not seen this before, so it's first time for me. I don't know how this story is going to go, but it's open that he could fail in whatever he's doing. I suspect not, because most films that's not the case, but. That's still a possibility, whereas, you know, if it's Bond-style villain going to blow up the world and, um, you know, go into space and kill the planet from space because of yeah. reasons, um, then you figure that's probably <laughs> not going to go ahead. The, the hero's going to save the day. Yeah. <laughs> of course, in Bond films, if it was a living daylight, so you'd already have got the person through the wall by this point, so <laughs> it would essentially have been the introduction to the film. I used to, because of how red those buses look, but London looks just as grim as Berlin. And those buses yes. just really show up, don't they? Yeah. Another thing you wouldn't particularly see in a James Bond film, having to yeah. fill out a form to get a gun. <laughs> well, it slows down the pacing, I suppose. So, although, actually, if you think about it, um, in Doctor No, when he's been 
Guinness beer to take it off and giving the ball to PPK to begin with. There's a wee bit of that. Bond abandoned that quite quickly. Yeah. Yes. And she's no Miss Money Penny. <laughs> this woman is she. No. <laughs> I wonder if my trench coat would be able to fit $68,000 in one of its inside pockets. Not that I'm ever likely to be in a position where I could test that out, but it's good to know these things. Yeah, I think if you have $68,000, so you can probably get the right sort of trench coat. <laughs> and so the $68,000 doesn't ruin the line either. <laughs> Always still supremely unimpressed. So much paperwork. Just in case you missed it. <laughs> and that's what you get with a hack director though, isn't it? <laughs> Not trusting the audience. Yeah, actually I'm disappointed by the cinematography in this. It's very mundane. And I think that's got to it being the same DUP as it, the Epicus file it's got to be the, the director he's mm. just restraining him and there's just there's no 
no fizz to this film. But working yeah. like so far, isn't it? The only there's a slight attempt at it when uh, Palmer was coming out of uh, Colonel Ross's yeah. office, but that's been the only even slightly quirky thing that's happened it's so very, far. Very, uh, very, very static, very ordinary. Hmm. It might be that I just thought that was the best way to handle the film. It's so far been a very straightforward mm. yeah. way it's going. There's, there's not... Maybe we'll kick it in a higher gear when things uh, start twisting a bit more towards the end. But Yeah, but I mean, because like the settings are so drab and grey and that... Um, you know, the character's so subdued, really, that you, you kind of need something there. So you, um, yeah, yeah, it'd be nice if it was even if it was just the the photography of it. But it'd have something a little more interesting than have stationary shots in almost every scene. And yeah, there's there's, there's no there's absolutely no dynamism to it at all. And I'm not looking for like hyperkinetic editing or anything like that because that drives me crazy. No. But <laughs> just. I wish it wasn't quite so static. It's, there's no flair. That's really the word I'm looking for, I think. It's again what um, the uh, the DOP did in the Epicus file. There's some really interesting camera angles there and just, uh, just kind of liven things up a bit. And everything is so stationary there. It may as well not have been a DOP. It doesn't look like he's had an awful lot to input to this so far. Yeah. Wonder if part, part of that is say may well just be the setting. It's it's actually quite strange seeing places like London and uh, Berlin being so grey and drab, given the the, the gaudy baubles they've both turned into <laughs> by this point. Uh, it's actually the same thing on the those TV films I talked about. It's uh, they're both set in largely in parts of Russia just after the uh, Glasnost kind of era. So there's still basically a lot of... Uh, Before the sort of oligarchy era when uh, Russia started embracing yeah, all Western it's, it's, capitalism. Yeah, it's, it's sort of just at the turn of that. So it's all still a bit, well, third world, mm-hmm. really. <laughs> it's uh, very strange again seeing, especially Moscow, the way that's portrayed. very Soviet. These days in films. Yeah. Yeah. Again, it was those buses in Trafalgar Square there. It was just... It's a long time since I've seen London look so grey. This is not yeah. like that at all now. And just those buses just... They almost looked unreal because it was so... They popped out so much from the background. So yeah, so that could contribute a bit to why everything else it just seems so mundane. But again, it actually seems a bit too much. So it's just... It needs a bit of life in it. Yeah. And say what you will about Billion Dollar Brain, I think it does have that going mm-hmm. for it, uh, which is probably what happens when you put Ken Russell in. <laughs> and it was a, these kind of things. He's, he's not going to approach it in the same way that anyone else would. So. Yeah. <laughs>
Uh, it looks like uh, the director of photography was allowed to do something for like 10 seconds there. <laughs> At least let me <laughs> stick a different lens on or something. bit early for the contractually obligated dramatic rooftop showdown. Depressing, semi-bombed out bit of wasteland there. <laughs> Looks like Glasgow. Quite subtle product placement. <laughs> you mean for the telescope? That's the one. Yeah.
you think that bit was improvised or was that always part of the plan all along? <laughs> Step four, hit with a very big spanner. I'm sure about the last five minutes of this film in a modern film would have been a five-second montage. I'll just leave this here. Yeah, I just keep coming back to the fact that nobody has made any sort of mark in this film at all. Guy Hamilton just sort of seemed to have stuck the camera in front of people and said, just uh, read off what's in the script. And to us, at this point even, they could probably do with the jazz funeral yeah. from his living let die. <laughs> just to liven things up a bit. <laughs> <laughs> So if you like rubble in this film, then you're in retreat. There's lots of rubble in. There. 
somewhat dilapidated buildings. Yeah, there's a good variety of um, grey around. Uh, <laughs> Professional mourners, but Greek. There's something about the design of that hearse too. It just like makes me think it should be white with a um, Ghostbusters logo on the side. <laughs> Once was probably not necessary. It doesn't need three or four of those um, orchestral screeches, really. <laughs> Oh, I've been tapped on the shoulder. Best fall over unconscious then. <laughs> Again, step four. Hit him with large spatter. It's not the first film I've seen that. Apparently people have an off switch in their shoulder. <laughs>
<laughs> well, when you put it like that, yeah. <laughs> Because oh, those are comparable, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So how do you find this compares to Billion Dollar Brain then, Scott? 
you know what, Billion Dollar Brain is actually much more memorable. Uh, I think the plot here is far better. It's uh, on strict terms. I haven't just read the book. It's uh, slightly different from the book, but uh, not in a, I guess, major thematic mm-hmm. ways. Uh, but the, this film adaptation is kind of flat. The, there's not much apart from that plot to drive you through. Uh, it's mildly interesting here, but it's kind of been really been dragged down by the rest of the the kind of somewhat mediocre nature of the rest of this mm-hmm. film. Uh, Billion Dollar Blaine's plot might tend towards being absolutely mental towards <laughs> the end of it, but it's certainly a far more memorable film. And as I say, the first hour or so of it is... Uh, in terms of the kind of investigative work and that kind of stuff is as good as anything in the first half of this or the uh, Chris file so uh-huh. I may actually have to re- revise my, my order now this is this is a good book but it's not so good a film whereas The Billion Dollar Brain for its many flaws is much more interesting and even so this is still leagues ahead of the television uh, movies so <laughs> oh they must be quite bad things that really is um I'm really finding this film a bit of a struggle here just because it, it's, as you say, f- it's very, very flat. You mentioned earlier too, it's yeah. workmanlike. It's, you know, this plot is actually reasonably interesting, but it's like Guy Hamilton's determined to sm- um, swat any interest out of every turn. Like, we'll just leave this camera here and we'll have people stand about and yeah. move on to the next <laughs> scene where the camera's just staying here and the people are standing about. Oh, I've actually got to the turn a little bit in this one. Uh, uh, that's enough. There we yeah. go. It's that one minute earlier when it was like the really wide angle lens that sort of swept down from the top of the skyscraper across, I think it was an ice rink. And it's like, it's yeah. the one bit where the camera did anything interesting.
I wonder if there's anyone that Harry Palmer doesn't suspect. That is how you get to be a good spy. Yeah, I believe the the term of art would be right suspicious bastard. <laughs> Oh, I suppose while well, I remember the, the other mildly interesting thing about those two TV movies, uh, and possibly also the reason why they're nothing like as good as the other ones, is that although it very clearly says Len Dayton's Bullet to Beijing or uh, Midnight in St. Petersburg, nothing at all to do with them. <laughs> no, not a goddamn thing. It's like basically <laughs> character created by. And that's it. Yes. <laughs> yeah. It's like that time when uh, Quentin Tarantino was presenting <laughs> films, you know. So. hit you in the face with apparently
That's the point. <laughs> you do realise this torture hurts, Palmer. does look like they're changing a somewhat the ending of this film, which uh, compared to the book, which probably a good thing. It's a somewhat terse uh, ending with uh, based on Nahalem and Kane kind of uh, well, Palmer shooting fireworks at each other on a bonfire night uh, celebration. It's, it's no, it's no, no way for them to go out really. That might just look a bit silly on film. Yeah, well, a little bit after. West Germany borders Switzerland. Why can't you just go directly to Switzerland? <laughs> that makes no sense. Let's go through two different countries to get to the third country we could have just got to directly. Okay, I'm genuinely annoyed by that because not only is that an impractical way to get to Switzerland, Czechoslovakia is nowhere near Switzerland anyway. You'd have to go back into Austria. <laughs> Somebody's not thought this through. Maybe there's a tunnel. <laughs> Thank you. 
Slightly different type of rubble to see in this scene. <laughs> it's nice that they keep it so varied. It's a shame they've learned, they made some simplifications to the plot in this, and I think it really could have done with being a bit more complex, just to keep your interest in it. Yeah. Uh, basically all the interesting things have happened in like the last, you know, 10, 15 minutes. And uh, after the first hour or so, it's uh, a bit of a struggle to, to keep your interest with it, isn't it? To be honest for me, I was a bit of a struggle after the first 15 minutes. Um, <laughs> again, you I mean, it's because I think, well, the plot is reasonably interesting, but it's told fairly straightly. Hmm. And then, so that's okay if you have sort of something interesting going on around it. But, you know, you've got one interesting character in Harry Palmer, well, the Colonel Stock, it's almost comic relief, but he's entertaining. But yeah, then everybody else is just sort of, you know, there. It's all very, what's the word? You used work like you before. It's all very, meh, meh. It's all very meh. Uh, <laughs> perfunctory is perhaps the word. Yeah. So there's nothing in the film that really sparks at all. Yeah, a little disappointed with talking to this character of uh, Johnny Vulcan because in the book he's he was far more, uh, well, almost Bondian in, in what he gets up to. He's louder and brasher, and he's been entirely nondescript <laughs> in his portrayal here. Yeah, because one of the the few highlights of the film is the bits when Palmer's just sort of delivering some very dry lines and things, like when he was talking to that German agent. That yeah. knew Palmer from the old days didn't know that he was Dorf, um, but it's like you could just crying out for more things. Like, ah, maybe they'd had some sort of interplay between Palmer and Vulcan. Mm-hmm. They would just you know, kind of keep the thing leavened. Yeah, there's there's plenty of that in the book, um, and it's also playing far more into makes far more comment on the you know, relative societies of East and West uh, Berlin at the time, and in general, it's a, it's a a quite good, varied and interesting book that's been wildly underserved by this adaptation.
old swapping coach trick. Yes, anywhere will do. <laughs> <laughs> oh, what a ridiculous death. Sorry, Scott, I interrupted you. Just, that was just farcical. <laughs> Those bullet holes were conspicuous by their absence a moment ago. <laughs> No real need for that pan. (laughs) Suggesting that somehow Nelson is watching over or something. (laughs) Demonstrating absolutely nothing. (laughs) Doesn't look quite so grim and grey in that shot as it did earlier. Must have been the one day of sunshine you got in Britain at the time. I think that was rationed after the war as well, wasn't it? Yeah. (laughs) Well, I think we made our opinions on that fairly clear. Uh, Not one of the best, but uh, yeah. Thanks for watching. Okay, see you guys next time. Bye bye.